as followers of Jesus, we are called to love what really matters. To love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And to love others as we love ourselves. And so love should be a central characteristic of us as a church community. We should be people who love each other well. Now often that means that we should express care and commitment to each other in pleasant and enjoyable ways. Spending time with each other. Sharing our lives with each other. Celebrating the love and the joy and the peace that God has poured into our hearts. But sometimes, this love needs to be expressed in more difficult and challenging ways. Situations can arise where the loving thing to do is to make some painful and some unpleasant decisions. But if we claim to really love each other, then we mustn't run away from those situations. We mustn't try and avoid these complicated and delicate issues. There is too much at stake for us. So in his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote to help them respond in a loving way to a really difficult and a really complex Situation. We're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, sorry, chapter 2, verse 5, down to verse 11 this morning. If you have a Bible, you can have a look at it. If not, just listen on as I read it to you, and then we're going to try and explain and think about what's happening here. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me, As he has grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ. For your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. One of the difficulties in correctly understanding the Bible, is that we often don't know as much as the original readers of a passage of Scripture did. We don't know the details of the situations that they were facing. We don't know personally the people involved. And so although when Paul wrote, if anyone has caused grief, Everyone in the church receiving this letter from Paul knew who he was talking about, who he was referring to, We don't. We don't know who this guy really was. We don't know exactly what his role was in this church. Nor do we know exactly how he caused this grief. 
Some people have suggested that he was the same man that Paul confronted in 1 Corinthians, in a previous letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because that guy was living in a sexually immoral situation. So some people think it's him. Other people say it's more likely that he was someone who had opposed Paul and challenged his authority during that painful visit that we have been mentioning in chapter 2, verse 1, that he made a little earlier. Perhaps this church had initially failed to confront this critic of Paul at the start, and that's why he had to write this letter in between First and Second Corinthians, the, the letter that he wrote out of great distress and anguish of heart, as he says in verse 4. Now, we can't be absolutely dogmatically sure of what this man had done. We have to admit that we don't really know. But that doesn't need to stop us from taking the principles of what Paul taught here and applying it to the very situations that may arise in our lives or in our church. Because what we can be sure of is that this man's actions, whatever they were, they'd caused pain to others. Paul says he's not so much caused grief, so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you. Now, he had caused grief for Paul. Hence the distress and the anguish and the tears of writing that letter to them. But Paul didn't want his emotional pain to be the focus here. He didn't want it all to be about him and his personal suffering. Instead, he wanted this church to focus on the pain that this man had caused them all as a fellowship together. He wanted them to face up to the fact that this man's actions or words or attitude had caused all of them to suffer in some way. And that was really important for a number of reasons. I think for me it highlights the seriousness of sin. When we fall into sin, when we make a mess of our lives, when we allow sin to dominate our lives, when we walk away from God's purpose and plan for us, it doesn't only impact ourselves. It doesn't only cause us pain. It can also cause serious hurt to others. Especially to our church family. But this also helps us to understand why these are the kind of things that we need to deal with and deal with it seriously and openly. Paul's actions here are not of self-preservation or a self-centered desire for retaliation or revenge. Instead, he dealt with this situation so seriously because he knew how damaging it was to this church community. But I think it also helps us to remember that we can't really deal with these issues properly by trying to minimise the offence. We don't find true healing by pretending that nothing bad has been done or that no harm has been caused. By saying, oh well sure, look, it's alright. Nobody really was hurt by that. That's not dealing with this situation. We need to be upfront 
We need to be honest about the sin before forgiveness and reconciliation can occur. So through this, this man's wrong words or actions or attitude, he had hurt his church. He had hurt his Christian family. And so it was a situation that needed to be challenged. And this church had done that. Paul referred to this when he wrote, the punishment inflicted on him. Now some have suggested it wasn't done as quickly as, as they should have. Why Paul's visit to them was so painful. And why he had to write that difficult letter. But eventually this church responded to the seriousness of this man's sin with discipline. With biblical discipline. Now Paul here doesn't describe in detail what that discipline was. But it seems likely that it was separation from him. The refusal of to fellowship with him. That was the punishment that was inflicted on him. This is what Paul taught this church to do in the case of that man living in sexual immorality in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, expel the wicked man from among you. Now what that means is, it doesn't mean that that man was kicked out of God's family. It doesn't mean that he was unadopted as a child of God. Or that he was recondemned or became re-lost. It's not about taking away that man's salvation. As we thought about in chapter 1, verse 22, that seal of ownership that God places on us as believers, he doesn't remove that. And the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come, does not leave them. And so, those people who are disciplined in this way, they're still a believer in Christ. They're they're still part of God's family, but they aren't able to experience the blessings of fellowshipping with other believers. This is the kind of response that Jesus was talked about in Matthew chapter 18. I'm sure some of us, some of you remember that, that passage in Matthew 18. Starts off verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. When our brother or sister in Christ falls into sin, our first act should not be to go and gossip about it to a whole load of other people. Neither is it to go and to complain about this person and how terrible they are. Nor is it to cut ourselves off from them. That shouldn't be the first response. Rather, Jesus wants us to go and try and work it out with them. Just ourselves. Because that's the quickest way to come to that place of forgiveness and restoration. But if that doesn't work, then Jesus says we need to take the next step. Verse 16. But if we will not listen, take one or two others along. So that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. By involving others, we up the seriousness of that situation. And increase the likelihood that that person will face up to their sin. 
they will come to that point saying, yeah, okay, I was wrong. But if he refuses to, tell, to listen to them, Jesus says, tell it to the church. Tell it to the community of believers. When repentance is refused, we need to take it further, including the church, community, to again reinforce the seriousness of the situation and the desperate need for repentance. But Jesus goes on in verse 17 to say this. But if he refuses to listen, even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That doesn't mean be horrible and nasty to them. Of course it doesn't. Jesus, he reached out in love to the pagans and the tax collectors. But it does mean don't fellowship with them as you would a brother or sister in Christ. And so this church discipline, this kind of church discipline, is only to be used as a last resort. When all other attempts to bring someone to repentance has failed. It's not to be entered into lightly. Neither is it to be entered into just individually, just as as ourselves. Paul emphasised that this was a, a community decision. He said that this discipline was inflicted on him by the majority. This isn't the angry response of someone who's been hurt and you eventually say, well, I'm not going to talk to him. That's not what we're talking about here. Rather, it's the considered and the loving response of a community who is deeply concerned for one of their own. And the goal of this should always be that this is a temporary situation. We are to try to allow the person in some way to suffer the consequences of their bad choices so that they come to realise they are wrong and reconciliation can occur. And this is what happened in this situation. In verse 6 of of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. It's enough. Paul believed that this separation period could now end because it had done its job. This man had suffered enough that he had been brought to his senses. He had realised that he had done wrong. He was sorry for the pain that he had caused and he repented of his actions and his attitudes. To continue that punishment, to continue that separation, would not only be unnecessary, it could also be dangerous. It needed to end, Paul says, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So that sorrow would just not be all-encompassing and just hold them down. Paul talks about a little bit more about this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, further on in this letter. He says there's two types of sorrow. 
Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow leads to death. When we mess up, when we fall into sin, God wants us to be grieved by that. It's right that we feel sad over our failures and bad decisions. Because sin is serious. It hurts us. It hurts others. Ultimately, it hurts God. But God doesn't want us to stay in that place of sorrow and grief. He wants us to respond to that awareness of our sin with repentance. With a sincere inner hearts turning away from it. Saying, that was wrong, I don't want to do that anymore. And by coming to God and receiving His total, complete and full forgiveness that was paid for by the cross of Jesus. God promises that if we confess our sins that God is faithful, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So if we get stuck in that place of excessive grief, if we never move on from just feeling bad about our sin and overwhelmed with sorrow about our sin, if we just get stuck in that place, if we don't go on to repentance and then the joy of forgiveness, then that distance between us and God and us and and God's people will continue. And that's never what our Heavenly Father wants. So when we sin, grief and sorrow is an appropriate response. But it's only a temporary place to lead us to repentance and forgiveness and joy and reconciliation. And so Paul wrote to this church here to help this guy, this sinner, this repentant sinner, experience that forgiveness and experience that restoration in the fullest way possible. So verse 7 of our, cha- of our passage says this, Now instead, you ought to forgive him. He wanted them to declare that they declare their forgiveness of sin. That they'd forgiven the sin that was against them. He wanted them to assure him that that sin no longer stood between them. It was completely forgiven. And of course it would never be brought up again. But Paul didn't just tell others to do that. He also declared his own forgiveness of him. And also the reason for it. He says, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Paul knew that his forgiveness, that this forgiveness was crucial for the health of the church. But first and foremost, he forgave this man in the sight of Christ. 
He forgave not because this man deserved it. Because how can you deserve forgiveness? By his very nature, you're the one who's in the wrong. Not because just this church needed it. Of course they did. But ultimately because Paul himself had experienced it from Christ. He had been forgiven so much. So he was willing to forgive. And that's why we need to be a forgiving community. That's why forgiveness should be right at the heart of who we are. We are to forgive others because we've been forgiven. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. We've just celebrated God's amazing forgiveness of us, of our sins this time of communion. Have we been forgiven so much? How could we ever withhold forgiveness from somebody for what they've done to us? But Jesus also told this church not only to forgive him, but also to comfort him. A few weeks ago we were looking at chapter 1 of this letter. And we were thinking about that word comfort. So if you remember, it, was, it means to come alongside someone and to give them help and support. Remember, we were looking, remember thinking about this guy, Alistair Brownlee, coming alongside his brother Johnny in the triathlon when he was exhausted and he collapsed. And Alistair put his arm around him, picked him up and helped him across the finish line. It's the same picture here. We're talking about comforting this, the brother. This brother had lost his way. He'd stumbled into sin. Now he was, he was devastated. He was grieving over the mess that he had made and the hurt that he had caused his brothers and sisters in Christ. So he needed his church to come and not only to say, I forgive you, but also to come alongside him. Get their arms around him. Pick him up. And help him to start running again for Christ. It's another picture of how we can comfort those in any trouble with the, the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. God is the one who, when we repent of our sin, doesn't only declare our forgiveness through Christ, He also overcomes that separation between us and Him. And He comes alongside us and He picks us up and He helps us to walk in fellowship with Him again. And He wants us to be willing to do the same for others. When other people repent, He wants us to express that forgiveness full, free, complete forgiveness and come alongside them and bring them that comfort and the support and encouragement so that they can continue their walk with Christ. And of course the motivation of all of that should be God's love. God's unlimited, unconditional, unending love. That love we were celebrating this morning. But in this passage Paul didn't just want that love to be implied and invisible, internal. 
He encouraged this church to make it clearly declared, undeniably visible. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. This man needed to hear, to feel, to experience this love in an unmistakable, unambiguous way. They needed to say to him, we love you. I think Jesus did this for Peter in John chapter 21. Remember Peter, how how he denied his Lord three times? And he so easily could have fallen into excessive sorrow and overwhelming grief. That could have been the end of Peter's walk with God. But on that beach after the resurrection, Jesus three times asked Peter to declare his love for him. And in response, Jesus three times reaffirmed his commitment to Peter. Not only restoring his relationship with with Christ, but also restoring him to service for Christ. It was a complete, total, and absolute reconciliation. How we might express that might be different in each of the different situations that we find ourselves in. But when someone is coming back to the Lord, we need to look for opportunities to express our forgiveness. To come alongside them and comfort them. But also to confirm our love for them. And to assure them in unmistakable ways that they've been restored to full fellowship. But why is this so important? Why do we need to do all of this? Especially when it's so difficult and delicate and in some ways uncomfortable to go through this process with somebody. Well, Paul reminds us right at the end of our passage in verse 11 that we should do this because we're in a spiritual battle. We have to do this in order that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. I think sometimes we can forget this, can't we? We can forget that we are always in a spiritual battle. Sometimes we are very aware of that, but sometimes we forget. But Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, he says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle really isn't about other people. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Satan is always working against God's purposes and God's people. Always. And one of the ways he does this is to try to stop this process of discipline, sorrow, repentance and restoration. He tries to stop it at all these different points. So Satan is out to destroy churches by making them afraid to confront serious sin in this manner. Or by encouraging them to confront it in an unloving and harsh way. Satan is out to defeat stumbling Christians by tempting them to remain either in an unrepentant state Or by convincing them that because they've made such a mess of it, they've blown it. 
And they can never be forgiven. They can never be restored. And Satan is out to divide the body of Christ by hindering their full and free forgiveness and acceptance right back into the very heart of fellowship. Those who have fallen. And in doing all of this, Satan wants to darken our witness and their impact in this world. And so keep broken people from true repentance and true restoration to fellowship with God's people and service in God's kingdom. So that's why the obedience to Paul's instructions here in this letter were so important. It really wasn't about Paul's feelings or his name being blackened. It was much more important than that. This was about standing against Satan's scheme to, to weaken the church, to hide the gospel, and to keep men and women and young people in that kingdom of darkness and heading to a lost eternity. So confronting sin is difficult and it's challenging. It would be so much easier to run from these sensitive and complex issues, stick our head in the sand and pretend everything's fine. But that is not the loving thing to do. Loving individuals, loving the church, loving the people around us, and loving our Lord means that we need to be willing to deal with these issues as a community. True love will lead us to face up to the seriousness of sin. True love will lead us to confront this sin with humility, sensitivity and courage. To respond eagerly when repentance is expressed. To restore completely through forgiveness, comfort and love. And to stand together against the powers of this dark world. I pray that God would fill our hearts with this kind of love. And that each one of us, as well as a community together, will love what truly matters.